The following message is from Westway Christian Church in Scottsbluff, Nebraska. If you'd like to know more about us, go to westwaychurch.com. Thank you for listening. Well, good morning. Hope you are all off to a great new year, as Becky um, talked about a moment ago. I want to take a second and thank the Nebraska Cornhuskers for making the Big Ten football season happen. Because without you... Ohio State would not be in the place that they are. And regardless what you think about a six-game team, they just destroyed Clemson the other night. So you know what? Thank you, Nebraska. I rarely say that, but thank you, Nebraska, for all of your work uh, during, during the Big Ten um, season. Well, I'm John, and I'm one of the pastors here at Westway Christian Church, and I am really thankful that you are here with us today. I would encourage you to open your Bible if you have them. Um, there's several different verses we're going to be looking at today. Uh, we're going to be looking in uh, 1 Corinthians. Um, so you can just open your Bible to that, 1 Corinthians. We're also going to be looking at Mark chapter 14. And then we're going to close our message time with Acts chapter 2, verses 42 uh, to 47. Every January, we spend a few weeks talking about who we are as a church. We want to remind one another of what are the things that we find valuable, especially as we go into a new year. And we did this, we've done this the last several years, and we do this because we don't want to lose focus. It's easy for us to be distracted. If you were to read through the entire Old Testament, I know we talk about these things all the time, but if you were to read throughout the entire Old Testament, you would see a people who are constantly being drawn to remember who God was, people constantly being drawn to remember and needed a reminder of who they were because of who God was. So we do this a little bit to remind ourselves of what we wanna be about as a church body. And our mission here at Westway Christian Church is simple. It's to proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord. That's, that's why we do everything that we do, because we want to proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord. And then our vision, the thing that we, wanna, that, that we feel like God has called us to be about, the direction that God has oriented us in, is we want to grow in our unity, our purpose, and our love so that the people of Scottsbluff County know who Jesus is. So those two things, along with our values and, and our preferred culture, those two things really guide and shape who we are as a church. Those are our filter. And today we're gonna talk a little bit about, actually the next three weeks, we're gonna talk a little bit about this in, in a series that we've just simply called We Are. This week we're gonna talk about We Are. We are a united community. We want to be united. Next week, we're going to talk about we are a giving community. And then the week after that, we're going to talk about we are a pro-love community and how those things shape who we are, who God is calling us to be in 2021. Because like 2020, we have no idea what the next 12 months are going to hold. I don't think any of you saw God press the giant reset button on January 1st. We still find ourselves, many of us, in the exact same spot we were in on December 31st. So we want to be oriented 
around what God has for us, despite what 2021 will look like. So why these three things? Of all the things that we talked about, why did we talk about, why did we pick unity and giving and pro-love? Because these are, these are really the marks and the design of the New Testament church. We see the New Testament church united together around these three pieces. And unity is first, because if we're not united in what it is that we're trying to do, you don't get giving. And giving is not just about money. Next week, we're gonna talk about it within the context of money. But giving is not just about money. Giving's our, our time and our talents and our skills. But we don't get to be a giving community unless we're first united. And we will never be a pro-love church, a church that seeks to love people who do not know who Jesus is. We will never be that church unless we are all united around that. There can't be any holdouts in being a giving community. We're either all a giving community or we're not. We're either all a pro-love community or we're not. Because there are people outside of this building and frankly, people inside of this building who have no idea who Jesus is. And they're not going to know who he is, who he is unless we are united in our purpose, unless we're united in our giving, think bigger than money, unless we are united in our love for one another. So we're gonna look today at 1 Corinthians is where we're gonna spend a lot of our time. And if you have the Bible app, I'd encourage you to, to open that. You can follow along all of these verses that we've done over the last several weeks. All of these verses are gonna be found in an event that we have created for you, especially for this. I just wanna say that I have loved seeing people join the different Bible reading plans that we have sent out every week. It's been a real encouragement for me to get notifications throughout the day, to wake up the notifications that people have done their reading and commented. It's just been a lot, of, a lot of encouragement and a lot of positive things that I'm seeing happening in that. So I wanna encourage you to open your Bible if you have that or follow along with us in 1 Corinthians chapter one. We're just gonna read verses uh, one to two together. And it says this, this letter is from Paul, chosen by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and from our brother Sosthenes. I'm writing to God's church in Corinth. We're gonna stop right there for a second. Whose church is it? Let's put the verse back up on the screen there for a second. Whose, whose church is it? The one, two, three, four, fifth word in the second verse. I'm writing to whose church? It's God's church. If you miss this, you will have every understanding about what it is we do here. You will be wrong. You will completely miss the point if you think that what we do here is about anyone else but God. It's God's church to you who have been called by God to be his own holy people. That's what it means to be the church. People who have been called by God to be his holy people. He made you holy by means of Christ Jesus, just as he did for all people everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. So today, as we talk about unity, 
we're united around this thing that is God's thing. This isn't my thing. It's not our elders' thing. And honestly, it's not your thing. This is, this is God's thing. And it becomes kind of our thing, but it's only our thing as long as we are following God's plan for it. Does that make sense? Do we see how we are invited into this? Let's go to 1 Corinthians 1.10. I appeal to you, dear brothers and sisters, by the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ to live in harmony with one another. Let there be no divisions in the church. Rather, be of one mind, united in thought and purpose. So what Paul is setting up for us here is the mindset that we are to be united. We are to be in harmony. That doesn't mean that there aren't going to be disagreements. The question that we want to ask ourselves is, what are we in disagreement about? What are we in disharmony about? Are they about things that matter or are they about things that don't matter? If they're about things that don't matter, then that's not that big of a deal for us. And there's a pretty long list of things that don't matter. And I think one of the things that, that the Christian subculture likes to do is pick and choose what matters, right? Like if we were to go around to other churches in our community, there are gonna be some things that matter more to them than matter to us. What God wants us to do is he wants us to be united. He wants us to be in harmony. He wants us in this building, in this space, as this body who's been called out by Christ Jesus, he wants us to be united. He wants us to be in harmony. He wants us to be united in thought and purpose, which is why we can say things like, we are a united community. Which is why we can say things like our mission is to proclaim Jesus as Lord. We should all be able to get behind that. And maybe you believe something different about end times than what I believe differently about end times, which is great because we are gonna talk about Revelation later this year. But we wanna be united around the things that ultimately matter. And unity is one of those things. And what Paul is setting up for us here is he's talking to a church that is broken and is messed up and is in disunity over things that don't matter. And they're in disunity over one thing that really matters, which is the act of communion. This message kind of was born in a, in a small group, our Thursday night small group about three months ago. We were having a conversation and, I don't know what happens in your small group, but one of the things that happens in our small group is someone asks a question and then we spend like 20 minutes down this rabbit trail of biblical conversation. And one of the people in that small group that night said, wow, I, like when we read 1 Corinthians 10 a lot on Sunday mornings during communion, I've never really understood um, 10 and 11, I've never really understood why that matters so much. So today, that's what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about unity around communion. 
as something that ought to bring us together. So let's go to 1 Corinthians 11, verses 17 through 26. So Paul's not happy, just, just for the record. But in the following instructions, I cannot praise you. That means Paul's not happy. Paul is, Paul is pulling his punches a little bit. I'm, I cannot praise you for it sounds as if more harm than good is done when you meet together. So imagine that. Imagine being in the church in Corinth and you show up for your gathering and you actually do more harm than good. First, I hear that there are divisions among you when you meet as a church. And to some extent, I believe it. Paul's going to be sarcastic in his next phrase, and I don't want you to miss it. But of course, there must be divisions among you so that you who have God's approval will be recognized. Of course, you have to separate yourselves. How else would you know who the real Christians are within your body? See, Paul's being sarcastic here. He's calling them on it. When you meet together, you're not really interested in the Lord's Supper. For some of you hurry to eat your own meal without sharing with others. As a result, some go hungry while others get drunk. Doesn't that sound like a great church service to be a part of? What? Don't you have your own homes for eating and drinking? Or do you really want to disgrace God's church and shame the poor? See, that's the key right there. This was a culture. Paul's writing to a culture that was divided by class. And this is really hard for us to understand as Americans and as, as Westerners. We don't understand all of these class divisions and just how deep they were running. Listen to what Paul says next. What am I supposed to say? Do you want me to praise you? Well, I will certainly not praise you for this. So here's what's going on in this text. They're gathering together for their weekly gathering to which the meal was a part of that weekly gathering. They're gathering together for that. And the people who are wealthy, you know, the people who really don't have jobs, they show up at church and they bring all the good food. They bring all the good wine and they start to get together and they start to be obedient to the text that we're going to talk about at the end of our time together. They start to have a meal together. They start to, I'm going to use the word drink. Don't read too much into that but they start to engage in relationship. They start to live the life that, that God has for them. Does that make sense? So all the wealthy people are there. And then by the time their slaves show up, all the good food is taken. All the good wine is gone. Have you ever been to that buffet? Have you ever been to the buffet 10 minutes before they close and you walk in and it's like, oh man, I paid $9 for this. Like there's nothing left. See, this is what the people, this is what the poor, this is what their slaves, this is what the people who are working for them were showing up to. There's nothing left. There's no food. And, and Paul says it, He's, do, you to, do you want me to praise you for this? What am I supposed to do here? For I pass on to you, Paul writes, what I received from the Lord himself. 
Now, if you're a highlighter or an underliner, that's one of those verses in your Bible that you ought to underline. Um, Because when I read the Gospels, I don't see any interactions between Jesus and Paul having a conversation, period. And I certainly don't see them having any sort of conversation around the Lord's Supper or communion. So Paul and Jesus apparently had some secret conversation about communion, and I love that. I don't know what that means. Maybe you should ask that question. Text question to the number that'll be on the screen in a second. Like, I don't know when Jesus told Paul that, but Paul says he heard it from the Lord himself. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces and said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. So what Paul is trying to do here to the church at Corinth is he's trying to reorient them around the purpose of this particular portion of their gathering. It's not just a meal. I remember I grew up in the Presbyterian church and I remember going through a confirmation process. We met every Wednesday night. And one of the parts that they talked to us about in confirmation, probably the only thing I actually remember, is we talked about communion. And I had, remember we had this worksheet. And it was like multiple choice. Why do you take communion? I think one of the answers was because I'm hungry. That's not the right answer. See, the people in Corinth, they had a misunderstanding about the purpose of their gathering. And this misunderstanding about the purpose of their gathering was affecting the unity within the church. Imagine being one of those poor people. Imagine being one of those slaves coming into the room and there's no food or drink. And these these people are supposed to be my brothers and sisters. And they haven't saved anything for me. And now we're supposed to sing songs of praise to God together. Would you want to do that? You think there would be some animosity built up among those, among those two classes? Because there were only two. Again, in our culture, there are multiple classes. We think there are three, upper, middle, lower class. But in this day, there were, there were two classes And the gap between the upper class and the lower class was insurmountable. If you were over here, if you were lower class in Corinth, you were never crossing over to be upper class. There's no way. So when I use the word slave, it's because that's what they were. They were indentured slaves. They'd never be able to jump over into that next class, into the other class. So imagine how this is affecting the unity Well, again, I don't know this conversation between Paul and Jesus. But I can describe what this ceremony looked like 
in Mark chapter 14. So let's take a look at Mark chapter 14. We're going to read verses 22 to 26 in a second. And as you're turning there, so this is the last, this is the last week of Jesus's life. And it's not on the screen, so I'm going to read it, read it just because I find this story just so crazy. This is Mark 14, starting at verse 12. On the first day of of the festival of unleavened bread, when the Passover lamb is sacrificed, Jesus's disciples asked him, where do you want us to go to prepare the Passover meal for you? So every year they celebrated the Passover every single year without fail. Jesus, so Jesus sent two of them into Jerusalem with these instructions. Now listen to these instructions. I want you to objectively listen to these instructions for a minute. A lot of times we read stuff like this and we miss what's going on. Listen to, the, listen to the craziness of what I'm about to read to you that Jesus tells these two guys. As you go into the city, a man carrying a pitcher of water will meet you. Follow him. At the house he enters, say to the owner, the teacher asks, where is the guest room where I can eat the Passover meal with my disciples? He will take you upstairs to a large room that's already set up. This is where you should prepare our meal. Does that sound crazy to anyone else or is it just me? Crazy? Three of you. Awesome. Like this is just such a bizarre story. Going to town, you're going to meet a guy carrying a bucket of water. That's the one you want to follow. Right? So they do this and everything is just as Jesus had said. So they sit down and they begin to have this meal together and Verse 22, as they were eating, Jesus took some bread and blessed it. Then he broke it in pieces and gave it to the disciples saying, take it for this is my body. And he took a cup of wine and gave thanks to God for it. He gave it to them and they all drank from it. And he said to them, this is my blood, which confirms the covenant between God and his people. It's poured out as a sacrifice for many. I tell you the truth, I will not drink wine again until the day I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Then they sang a hymn and went out to the Mount of Olives. This is such a, as I was reading through this text, this Passover is something the disciples had done their entire lives. They had done it with Jesus at now, at least if Jesus had three years of ministry, And they were three full years. This is the third time they have had Passover with Jesus. Passover at this point in history had been practiced about 1400 years. So this ceremony had been done at least 1,400 times. And way more than that because the people did it individually in their own homes. And they had satyrs and they did all these other things. So thousands upon thousands upon thousands of times this ceremony has been done. And in one moment, Jesus basically says, oh, so you know this, you know this bread that you have been eating your entire life to commemorate the Passover of when the people were delivered out of bondage in Egypt. It's really not about that. Jesus says, this is my body. 
Can you imagine for a moment what that must have been like? And I've been racking my brain for the last several weeks trying to think of an analogy that would upend what we, something about that we, what we think. And this is the closest I can come. And it's going to be a terrible analogy. A few weeks ago, I was talking post after the 1015 with two of our elders. And one of them said, hey, you know, I really appreciate the way we've been going through the genealogy of Jesus. We've been talking about people that I never really thought about. And then one of the other elders said, yeah, if someone is coming to Westway Christian Church in December looking for a box check Christmas service, they're not going to get it. So like if you were bothered by what we did in December, by not just talking about baby Jesus in the manger, you have the slightest inkling, I think, of what it must have been like for the disciples to have something that was so crucial for them, completely and totally upended. They had to be offended by it. Now, I know it doesn't say that. But don't you think as human beings, they would have been really upset and bothered by this? They certainly would have asked, what does this mean? And interestingly, over the next, over the next 40 plus days, they actually have it figured out. We're gonna talk about that in a second. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians 11, verses 27 to 34. So here's Paul's argument. When the church gets together, the wealthy, you're eating all the good food, drinking all the good wine. You're not leaving anything else for anyone else. And I'm not gonna praise you for that. I'm not gonna tell you good job. I'm not gonna pat you on the back. It's not a good thing. It's disunity. It's causing disharmony within your church and it is destroying you and I'm not gonna be happy about it. So anyone who eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord unworthily is guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. That's why you should examine yourself before eating the bread and drinking the cup. For if you eat the bread and drink the cup without honoring the body of Christ, you're eating and drinking God's judgment upon yourself. That is why many of you are weak and sick and some have even died. He let the weight of that sink in. See, this disunity, and I, I don't think I'm reading too much into what Paul is saying. Because they're, they're disunified, not unified, and they're not living in harmony with one another. It's actually affecting the spiritual condition of their church body. It's making a terrible impact and in fact, that's why some people are sick. That's why some people are weak. And more to the point, some people have even died because they have not taken communion properly. Do you ever think about that when you, we get to the point in our gathering and someone says, I'll take out your little cup, tear off the, like you're, is that what you're thinking about? 
what Paul's writing here? The weightiness of this? Maybe we're all just stealing ourselves for how terrible the communion wafer tastes. See, Paul, Paul here is saying something that if we don't take this action seriously, it's, it's going to put us at odds with God. And here he says, he uses, I think he's, I think he's playing a little trick on words, a little play on words. Verse 29, for if you eat the bread and drink the cup without honoring the body of Christ, you're eating and drinking God's judgment upon yourself. I think there's a dual meaning there. So if I just take this and I don't think anything about Jesus, don't spend any brain waves considering what Jesus has done, what his sacrifice was, then I am eating and drinking God's judgment on myself. But there's also another way that I think Paul is encouraging the readers at the church at Corinth to read it. When he says, for if you eat the bread or drink the cup without honoring the body of Christ, you're eating and drinking God's judgment upon yourself. Who is the body of Christ? Who is the body of Christ? We are. So if I sit down during communion time and I don't think anything about Jesus, I'm drinking and eating judgment upon myself. If I sit down at communion time and don't think anything about any of you people, I don't think about my relationships with you, whether or not they're broken, whether or not I need to make something right or apologize. Then I think what Paul is saying is that I am eating and drinking judgment upon myself. See, this matters so much. Verse 31. If we would examine ourselves, we would not be judged by God in this way. Listen to the hope in that. So if we take a minute before we take communion and we actually examine ourselves, we're not going to be judged by God as long as we do it fairly. Yet when we are judged by the Lord, we're being disciplined so that we will not be condemned along with the world. There's so much. My little timer says six minutes left. It's not going to happen. Yet when we're judged by the Lord, we're being disciplined so that we will not be condemned along with the world. What would it be like for you? What would it be like for me? That when I felt conviction by the Holy Spirit... I didn't just retreat into this sad sack, lazy mentality of everybody hates me. God doesn't want to be around me anymore. It's not what he says. He says, when we're judged by the Lord, we're being disciplined so that we will not be condemned along with the world. What if you looked, what if I looked at God's judgment as a good thing? That God's telling me what's wrong in my life because he actually loves me. Parents, isn't that why you correct your kids? Because you love them? Because you want what's best for them? Verse 33. 
So my dear brothers and sisters, when you gather for the Lord's Supper, wait for each other. If you're really hungry, eat at home so you won't bring judgment upon yourselves when you meet together. And then I love the little tag there. Paul does this a few times in scripture. I'll give you instructions about the other matters after I arrive. So if you think back to the beginning of this section, remember when Paul says, I don't have anything to praise you about. Oh, when I get there, we'll talk more. Right? Paul's writing this from prison. So he's planning on showing up and having this conversation with them. Let's look at our last text together. Acts 2, 42 to 47. This is after the day of Pentecost. So Jesus is born, has three years of ministry, is crucified, resurrected, spends time with his disciples for about 40 days, and then ascends into heaven. And before he does that, he tells his disciples that they should go wait in Jerusalem in an upper room. While they're there, the Holy Spirit descends upon all of the disciples. Tongues of fire over their heads. They speak in the languages of the many nations. Thousands of people become followers of Jesus Christ on that day. They were baptized on that day. This is verse 42 from Acts 2. All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to pray. Now, if you notice the NLT has that phrase, including the Lord's Supper, in parentheses. Maybe your Bible, maybe your translation doesn't have that. Maybe your translation just says they devoted themselves to teaching, fellowship, the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. So why does the NLT put the Lord's Supper in parentheses? Well, when we read what we just read a few minutes ago in 1 Corinthians, we really saw that the Lord's Supper was part of the meal, right? Did you pick up on that? That was certainly what was going on in Mark 14. They were having the Passover meal together. And at some point, Jesus kind of said, okay, we're going to stop for a minute. When you eat this bread, this is what it means. When you drink this cup, this is what it means. So they got together for meals. They got together for prayer. They got together for fellowship. They got together for the apostles' teaching. It says they were devoted to it, in fact, which means they were devoted to it. It means they were disciplined in their devotion. Because to be a member of Christ's church in Jerusalem in AD 33 meant to separate yourselves from every other person that you knew that was not a Christian. So to be devoted to this, it means you were all in. 
It wasn't, I don't feel like going today. It was all in. And these four things are what surrounded them. This was their, this would have, I think, in some ways, been their vision statement. What kind of church, what kind of body do we want to be? Well, we want to be devoted to the apostles' teaching. That's the scripture. Primarily Old Testament, which I can't wait to talk about. So in a few weeks, we're going to cover all 66 books of the Bible in 10 weeks. I know you think I can't do it, but we can. They were devoted to fellowship. They were in relationship with one another. That's why this meal was so important. Because it's hard to be in fellowship with people when they're, if, if, again, if you are the, the, the lower class, which frankly would have likely been every one of us in this room, if you look at statistically. They were devoted to fellowship. So when the wealthy and the poor got together, they were in relationship. They had meals together and they prayed together. What was the result of this? Verse 43, a deep sense of awe came over them all and the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. And all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. Think about how messed up the church at Corinth is. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshiped together at the temple each day met in homes for the Lord's Supper and shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. See, this is what it looks like for us to be a people of unity. This is what can happen when we cast aside the things that our culture calls us to divide over and we're focused on what God wants us to be unified by, what God wants us to be unified around. And this this meal, if you wonder why we do communion every week, this is why. Because it's an opportunity for us to demonstrate that we are unified whether you are wealthy or poor. Like you're welcome at God's table if you're a follower of Christ. If you're male or female, you're welcome at God's table. If you are a Republican or a Democrat, I know. You're welcome at God's table. If you're a Nebraska Cornhusker fan, or an Ohio State fan. Thank God you are welcome at this table. Like this is, these, this is for us to be unified because our culture is constantly trying to divide us over many, many, many things. I'm an 80s kid and one of the movies that was one of my favorites was a movie called War Games. Maybe you remember 
that movie without going into the whole plot. The interesting thing is at the end of the movie, the computer says, the only way to win is not to play. The only way for us to be a unified body through the power of Jesus Christ is to not play our cultural game. To not be disunified, to work for unity, to work for harmony. And maybe that means there are things that you don't understand about what we do or why we do. Like, just ask. So let's have a conversation about things so we can be unified around the things that matter because this is our witness. Jesus says that we will be known by our love. And a community that's not unified is not in love. This is who we are called to be, is a unified community. So today, I want to encourage you, go ahead and take your cup. Let's take a moment and let's consider the body of Christ. And I mean that in the way that Paul meant it. Consider Jesus, what he's done for you. Consider one another. Think about the people that are in this room with you. Do you have things you need to make right? This is an opportunity for us to reflect on what God has done for us and is doing in our lives and in our community. So I'm gonna just give you a moment. You can bow your head, you can close your eyes, whatever you know. I'm gonna give you a moment to reflect on the body of Christ. If you're ready, I would encourage you to take the bread and remember that this is Christ's body broken for you. If you're ready, I would encourage you to take the cup which is Christ's blood poured out for you. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for your desire for us that we would be like you, unified. Unified in our purpose. Unified in our love. God, help us to be Help us to be the Acts 2 church. Call us to that. 
Help us to not sit in judgment over the church at Corinth, but to consider how we might be like them. Help us to reject the disunity and the disharmony. We want to be a body that honors you. And we do that by our unity with one another because of our unity with you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.